In his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 19 once again. Proverbs 19. Last week we were looking at verse 8. How to acquire heart. He who acquires heart loves his own soul. And uh, what a what a principle, especially in our culture whereby self-love has become uh, self-esteem idolatry and all the various uh, perversions that go with that. But here to love your own soul, the recipe for which is simple, one ingredient, um, acquire wisdom. Uh, actually acquire heart. Acquire heart. The word here is lave, lavav, for the, for the heart. He who keeps understanding will find good, will find a good thing. Well, pick up with that, and then we're going to move on to verse 10. We're going to talk about uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. The luxury, which is not fitting for a fool. And uh, who was that British guy that had that show on the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous? Robin Leach. Robin Leach, that's who that was. Shares a birthday with, with Linty. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Robin Leach and Linty. And the, everybody else that loves the lifestyles of the rich and famous, so... We'll talk about that here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's blessing on our time. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth, for your plan. Father, there's a lot of things we could be doing this morning, a lot of ways to spend our time, but nothing more edifying than to dedicate this next hour for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we humble ourselves under the authority of your word. We ask that you would, uh, because of the humility there, Father, that you would uh, implant the word within our soul, that we might receive it, that it might dwell richly, that it might spring forth and bear fruit, that it might save us in those days of testing. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So uh, last week we were looking at main point four, Acquire heart and guard understanding. Guard it. If you don't guard it, it slips away. It's like a crafty inmate that slips out of jail. You've got to keep, keep it under guard. And don't let it slip away. Don't forget it. Don't assume that because you learned it years ago, uh, you still have the same understanding you used to have. You've got to guard it. You've got to maintain it. And uh, those are the things that we can fall into complacency and think we know things that uh, we used to know, in which case uh, we need to think again. So uh, acquire wisdom and, and guard understanding. The verb is shamer, to guard understanding. And he who does guard understanding will find a good thing. And so as we were running out of time last week, we very quickly went through this. Um, first of all, the word for cross off the word wisdom there. The word is heart. So in verse 8, you've got to cross off wisdom. Uh, It's not getting wisdom to love your soul, it's getting heart to love your soul. And getting heart is necessary because if we don't keep getting heart, then we're going to lose heart. And losing heart, whereby we are heart deficient, is a problem. And many, many times in Proverbs, we spent most of last week looking at these verses, uh, many, many times in Proverbs you have what's called a lack of heart. And uh, a lot of times when the verb lack is connected to heart, They don't even use the word heart, they use the word sense, lacking sense. He who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. And while that's true, I think it's a stupid thing to do and you're kind of a knucklehead uh, to do that kind of a thing. I don't, that language doesn't help me. That language doesn't help to translate lacking heart. We're talking about a heart deficiency. And when you're lacking heart, when your heart capacity is diminished, that's a problem. And that's true in the physical heart and the the organ in your chest that's pumping blood. When that capacity is diminished, you've got a problem. But that's true with the cardia, with the soul, with the inner man. That when the innermost part of your being is lacking capacity, when your heart function is diminished, you've got problems. And that's what Proverbs describes with a diminished heart capacity. And uh, so just take all those references there that we looked at and review those and remind yourself that it's about a diminished heart capacity. So when, you have, when you're lacking heart, you need to get heart. And how do you get heart? 
Well, Proverbs tells us how to get heart. It is not only the remedy to lacking sense, but it is also the genuine origin of self-nefesh love. uh, To love your soul, to love yourself. Uh, You have to acquire this kind of heart. So if your heart is solid, if your heart is stable, if your heart is secure and strong, then that's a good thing. And that means as, uh, as an individual you can stand before the Lord in the integrity of your heart. David uses that, fra- that phrase a lot. In the integrity of my heart. And uh, you're ready to stand before the Lord uh, in, in such a way. That's the only basis for self-nefesh love. I would put forth that, uh, you know, that diminished heart, that uh, lacking sense. Uh, there's no call to love anything like that. The mechanism for acquiring heart is to listen to reproof. And uh, this is the only other place that we have kana, the verb for acquire, and lave, the noun for heart, the acquiring of heart that shows up here in Proverbs 19 and verse 8. The only other place that a combination can be found is in Proverbs 15 and verse 32. This tells us how to kana, lave, so that we can acquire heart. Proverbs 15.32, he who neglects discipline despises himself. If you, if you hate the musar, if you're neglecting discipline, if you are, uh, as we're learning in Hebrews 12, that uh, if, if you don't like the Father's discipline, that's a problem because we all should be embracing the Father's discipline. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gets heart. Kana lave acquires understanding. And so to get heart, like remember those get milk commercials? We need to adapt those get milk commercials with get heart commercials to acquire lave. And we acquire lave by listening to reproof. And this gets very personal. This is not just, you know, learning the word of God in general. This is not just a generic kind of go to Bible class and get doctrine, but actually it's listen to reproof. You're learning the Word of God and particularly focusing on those areas where the Word of God is smacking you upside the head, <laughs> where the truth of the Word of God is spotlighting things that, uh, you know, adjustments to your thinking related to that, all right? And um, Doug, did we lock that front door? We need to, there we go. All right, so the uh, listening to the reproof. And uh, paying attention, humbling yourself to the correction when the Word of God is spotlighting things that need to change. So he who listens to reproof gets heart. And when you get heart, you can love your own soul. You can love your own soul. And that's, uh, to me, the, the combination on these, all three of these points are, uh, are marvelous. Finally then, as we were running out of time, I threw point D up there, um, and E. I had a D and an E, right? Yeah. You know, when Scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself, I think there's a lot of bad theology that comes into that, primarily because I think the idea of loving yourself has been poisoned into our modern uh, 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 idolatry that, that the Bible warns us about. If the Bible warns us about that men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And it goes into, and now the term there is philautos, with, with philos love, as uh, as you exchange the truth of God for the lie, and instead of loving God, you're all about just loving self, and you're exalting the, the me above everything else. That's not right. But if we have the biblical understanding of loving self, if we do have the true self-nefesh love, if we have the self-nefesh love that Proverbs tells us how to get, then I think we can have the, we're in the best position to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we love our neighbor so, so that we speak the truth to our neighbor in love. So that uh, it may be that we are the instruments that reprove the neighbor. Whereby they can listen to reproof. Whereby they can have self-nefesh love if they are listening to the reproof. See, it does us no good to validate their sin and tell them they're okay, God loves them anyway. And to support their sin, that's not a reproof when it comes down to it. So uh, the principle there in Leviticus 19.18. Now the language is slightly different. It's not the same grammar. It doesn't have, it doesn't say love your soul in uh, in Leviticus 19.18. So I think we want to be cautious in, in drawing the exact parallel to that aspect. 
Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the, the command in Leviticus 19 is no different than the golden rule, as Jesus said, treat others as you would have them to treat yourself. In other words, love your neighbor in uh, such a way as you would want yourself to be loved. It's probably the best way to understand Leviticus 19.18. But the context there, you don't want to uh, oppress your neighbor, all of these things that you can do that are crimes in, in culture or sins before God are failures to love your neighbor. So when you look at um, verse, uh, shall we just say verse 11, uh, you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. Those are, those are just failure to love your neighbor applications. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of, the, of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind. You know, if you're going to victimize somebody because of their human weakness, look out. We're all humanly weak. Uh, you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And these are all uh, obviously they're all laws that, that could apply to any culture, any nation for the orderly function of society but they're grounded in humility before God, loving God and loving our neighbor. That's why it gets summarized in this way. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate, this is the key, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely uh, you may surely reprove your neighbor. See, there's a place for that. Love speaks the truth. It's speaking the truth in love. And, and it may come to the point that the reproof is what he needs. But he shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that command, uh, I don't know how often that gets included in it, but I am the Lord, the I am Yahweh is what follows the love your neighbor as yourself. It's grounded in I am Yahweh. Anyway, I think it's true that the, the best position we're going to have uh, to love our neighbor is if we are rightly loving our own soul. If uh, we're following these procedures here in Proverbs. Finally then, and this is what we hit in point E, running out of time last week, uh, finding a good thing. In verse 19 we have the third and final instance of finding a good thing that Proverbs has told us about. We want to uh, guard our understanding. But in Proverbs 16 he who gives attention to the word finds a good thing. So giving attention to the word of God you have found a good thing. Believers that are happy to be saved but don't live in the word of God they haven't found a good thing. Not like this. Not like this verse is talking about. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Yes, you want to have faith, you want to be saved, but you've got to be uh, giving attention to the Word. That's where the good will be found. 18.22 is the one about marriage. He who finds a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You have the blessing of, of uh, a believing husband, a believing wife, and the grace of God in your marriage on that basis. And then the third thing for finding a good thing is where we are today in uh, guarding understanding. Proverbs 19.8, he who keeps understanding, he who guards understanding finds a good thing. So really you can combine 16 and 19 to kind of a flip side of that same coin as far as giving attention to the Word and then guarding it. Guarding it. You know, you think about thy Word, I have hidden my heart. You're, you're, you're treasuring it. You're guarding it. That's the, uh, the issue there. Okay. Well, I think that's the last we deal with in verse 8. We've already covered verse 9 because verse 9 was included with uh, main point uh, 3. We included the will not, will not statements there in the liar. We uh, developed verse 5 and verse 9 in that point of study. So we can move down to verse 10. Luxury is, or the life of luxury is not fitting, not proper, not appropriate. 
The life of luxury is not appropriate for a fool. Much less, even less appropriate, is for a slave to rule over princes. Even less appropriate is for a slave to rule over princes. All right, so now here's a fun verse (laughs) in our uh, politically divided world today. This is point five in the outline. Proverbs describes fitting lifestyles and social orders. Proverbs describes fitting lifestyles and social orders. And uh, just one little verse here in this context, there's a larger development of it in Ecclesiastes, and we'll look at that here in a moment. But these, uh, these are issues that um, we're, we're happy to have a biblical passage to look to. We're happy to have concepts in the Word of God to glean principles from. It's, uh, it's curious because obviously the Bible is eternal as it's written. It was written in one context, but it's applicable in every context. And uh, perhaps today's class might be a good way to illustrate that, even if it's, even if it's tough to do. And so uh, much of what we do with hermeneutics and interpretation, of course, as we go back to the ancient world, we, we put ourselves back in the framework of, of 1000 BC when Solomon's writing this. And uh, we try to understand that day and age as best as we can. And, uh, and so we understand that's a day and age with uh, a lot of uh, social realities that, that don't exist anymore, for example. Uh, we were talking about uh, uh, wives and concubines. Uh, we're talking about polygamy. Uh, we talk about slavery. We talk about other things. And we, we understand that there are principles that we can glean but then we have to make adjustments in our application because we live in a different world. We live in a different day and age. We live in a di- so there are timeless principles that reflect the unchanging nature of God. And then there are adapted applications based upon modern realities and, and where we are, see. And so, um, you know, when it says slaves be in subjection to your masters, uh, we can easily adapt that to employers and employees, right? We're not literally slaves, uh, but we have an employer who is our boss, and we are the employee who works for that boss. And so we're adapting. We're adapting based on a principle into a into a modern application. Likewise here with a lifestyle, the life of luxury. You realize the life of luxury is very fluid, and the life of luxury is very relative based upon history, based upon technology, based upon the modern world in which we live. And the, the, the poorest of Americans is rich by world standards and certainly by historical world standards. It's, it's crazy. And uh, even a very modest uh, American lifestyle is, is, would be considered luxurious in, in most of the world today. Even in Europe today, and Europe's among the, the most developed parts of the world. But, uh, you know, who, who in Europe has 2,500 square feet? Who in Europe has 3,500 square feet or 4,000 square feet? Only the, the richest of the rich. You know, and, and most folks in Europe are looking at 800 square feet. And, and I'm thinking, wow, that was, the, uh, that was a little starter apartment that Sharon and I had right off of Fort Hood when we were first married. That was it was, uh, I think that was 670 square feet and uh, just a tiny little thing. And, uh, but it was fine. We were just starting out, no kids or anything. And, uh, but that little box, that's kind of normal in, in Europe, in, in Asia, in the Philippines. In fact, that's uh, downright luxurious in some of the, the Filipino condos I've been inside of. So uh, anyway, luxury, the life of luxury. Even, uh, you know, as, as I was scooping my ice cream last night, I was thinking, this is a, this is a luxury. That a hundred years ago, to have a frozen dessert like that, uh, you know, who, who could have had a frozen, that would have, that would have been a, the pinnacle of wealth at that point in, uh, in these things. But the life of luxury is not fitting for a fool. So these are the things we're trying to adapt. The concept of luxury. And... Then uh, the idea of fitting is a problem for us. Fitting speaks of what's right, what's proper, what's appropriate, 
And, uh, and that too is a relative thing because uh, different people will say that they deserve something or they, or they don't deserve something or nobody needs to have three cars. Nobody needs to have um, two houses. Nobody needs... And so there's, these are the arguments that come up in class warfare, in other political discussions when people you know, uh, are on the, the campaign trail talking about the 1% or the millionaires and billionaires, and they talk about they don't need something, so they should pay more taxes. And, and when, they, when they throw these things out there, they throw these things out there, they, say, they, they try to say, here's a group of people who don't need what they have, and here's another group of people who should have something they don't have, and it's right that we take it from them and give it to them. And so the world makes its own judgments on what's fitting, what's proper, what's right. That he doesn't have it, but he should. Or he has it, but he shouldn't have it. See? And so when you start making statements about should, you're making value judgments based on a standard, some kind of standard of right and wrong. And and if your standard is envy, that's wrong. (laughs) The Bible says thou shalt not covet. You know, in so many of these things, if we just go back to the Ten Commandments, we deal with a lot of issues. But right, proper, and fitting. Now, maybe the toughest part of teaching this verse is that it's in the Bible in the first place. And we have to realize this is not an opinion. This is not the ancient Jews um, being prejudiced. This is not uh, written by man. This is not a human opinion. Although we will see the human viewpoint that Solomon reflects in in Ecclesiastes. But here in Proverbs when it says luxury is not fitting for a fool, this is God's opinion. This is not fitting from God's viewpoint. God says when the fool is living the life of luxury, that's not right. That is inappropriate. That is not fitting. And that actually causes larger problems than just for the fool. Because there's other fools looking at that fool. (laughs) And there's other fools looking at that fool wondering, how come I don't have this life of luxury? Because most fools don't. But when on whatever occasion, for whatever reason, through whatever stroke of whatever, circumstances and details work out, and sometimes it's just a fool kid that inherits what his wise dad left him. Okay, And so you end up with a fool in a life of luxury and he didn't work to produce it. Anyway, it's not a fitting lifestyle. It was fitting when his dad had the wealth because his dad had the capacity to handle the wealth. And, And the dad was walking with the Lord when that wealth was accumulated for the Lord's good pleasure. These are the things we have to deal with because God has an opinion on this and God calls it not fitting. Not proper, not appropriate. And so really we have Scripture's commentary on lifestyles and social orders. Who is it that should run the city? Who is it that should run the state? Who is it that should run the country? And this also is bizarre for us because we, we grow up in the tradition of a, uh, a self-governing representative republic. You know how unique that is in the history of the world? That's something in the, you know, you talk about the 6,000 years of recorded human history. It's only come out in uh, in the recent couple of centuries. That's very new in its development. So, um, again, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less fitting, even more unfitting, is it for a slave to rule over princes. There is a certain kind of people who should be in charge and a certain kind of people who should not be in charge. And that's not our opinion, that's not our social commentary. This is what God is saying the kinds of people who should be in charge and the kinds of people who should not be in charge. And if that gets flipped upside down, there's going to be greater impact than just for those two people involved. It's going to impact the entire culture. Now let's look over to Ecclesiastes and we get more verses here. All right. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you get to Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. Chapter 
Now it's interesting because most of Ecclesiastes is written in carnality. That Ecclesiastes, and God allowed it to be in the Bible, but Ecclesiastes is the diary of Solomon who attempted to uh, find meaning in life apart from God's meaning in life, apart from Scripture, apart from truth. So he applies his vast wisdom in, in secular realms and, and you get a whole book full of human viewpoint. Uh, there's a bit of repentance at the end to fear God and, and, and so forth. The conclusion is that. But anyway, in, in these other chapters you get kind of a secular view of things and if they line up with the spiritual view of things we accept it on those terms because it's in Proverbs. We can find a parallel here. If it's at odds with Scripture, though, we have to be cautious and say, you know, would, would Solomon really say this in fellowship or is this only coming out of fellowship? So, um, and before I get to verses 5 through 7, one of my favorite passages is in this chapter, and it's in verse 19. It says, Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Isn't that a great verse? <laughs> you know? Put that on your refrigerator. No, don't. Okay? And this is an example of what I'm talking about. It's in the Bible. Does that mean it has to be true? Well, it's in the Bible, but it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so as it's being recorded from the perspective of a human viewpoint, from the perspective of a carnal mind trying to find meaning and value without divine viewpoint, that, yeah, that's what uh, it's going to be true for those that are without the Bible. This, this perfectly describes uh, this lost and dying world, right? Describes uh, carnal believers very well. But it's not what God would say or what a believer would say when he's in fellowship and oriented to the Word of God. So we keep that in mind. All right. Um, back then to verses uh, 5 through 7. There is an evil I have seen under the sun. That phrase under the sun is common in Ecclesiastes. It's referring to daily life. It's referring to secular existence, temporal life existence. No, uh, no uh, divine viewpoint. So an evil I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. And that's an evil. That human viewpoint looks at that and says, that's not right. Like an error which goes forth from the ruler. So imagine a king who decrees something that's just utterly wrong. An error. And, and, and the king is the one who said it. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> that's just backwards. That's upside down. That's we, we, expect, uh, we expect truth. We expect right things to come from our, our leadership, from our government. And if, uh, if they're going to say something wrong or enact a, a bad policy or uh, put forth something, then what happens after that? Do people just pretend? Do they play along with it? Do they you know, act like the emperor's got a nice new set of clothes because he said he did? He said, how do you like my new clothes? And then, oh yeah, they're great, they're great. You know, and everyone's going to go along with it because the ruler said it. Until finally the little kid speaks up and says, he has no clothes, he's naked. Well, uh, an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places. And so you end up with fools that are in authority. You end up with um, the inmates running the asylum. You end up with just the, 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 the weirdest of things and, and they're calling the shots. And even the, un, even the carnal mind, even the carnal mind can look at that and say, that, that's, that's not any good. What's that going to do? While rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Well, how did that happen? How is it that it seems like has there been a rebellion of some sort? Has that, what is it that turned the world upside down? How is it that this slave even owns a horse? And why is, uh, why is the prince not riding on his horse? How did this get turned upside down? 
And so the vocabulary here is curious too because sar is the word for prince and it's used here. Sar is also used in Proverbs 19 and verse 10. We have the Nabal fool and um, the Nabal like Nabal. Remember Nabal and Abigail. The Nabal is a, is a social fool as opposed to um, any other kind of fool that the Bible will talk about. And so when things are turned upside down when things are turned upside down, even the carnal mind can see there could be a problem with that. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. And I love that. I think it's kind of interesting that uh, the conscience of the human soul is such that you can identify with the divine order, even, uh, even in carnality. You can, uh, okay? It's like when Paul talks about the man of incest, he says, you know, even the Gentiles say that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, you've got an immorality among you that not even the Gentiles would uh, would approve of, and uh, in rebuking the Corinthians there, uh, I think this is uh, something else as far as God's wisdom is concerned, with uh, the unfitting lifestyles versus the fitting lifestyles. So, what about this fitting lifestyle? Sub so point A. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. Not only does Proverbs 19 say that, but Proverbs 26 repeats it. Proverbs 26 and verse 1. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. So if you have a, a, a fool, and again it's the social fool, it's the, it's the, um, the public uh, town idiot, right? you know, the village idiot, right? The um, so in, in any culture you've got the very well-respected members of the culture and you've got the unrespected, the unappreciated. The, I mean, who would listen to them? That's who we're talking about here. And if they, if they find themselves in the lap of luxury, that's not fitting. Proverbs 26 one is actually twice as long because it includes both the A part and the B part. Like snow in summer? When does that happen? That's backwards. And like rain in harvest? Uh, no thanks, I needed the rain earlier. <laughs> uh, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Different word, it's honor, not luxury, but still it's the same idea in terms of fitting for a fool and what's not fitting for a fool. And I think it's helpful having the seasons inverted here, the weather uh, in the seasons, like snow in summer and like rain in harvest. This is how unfitting it is. It is so unfitting, it is opposite day. It is upside down and backwards for the fool to be living the life of luxury. Now, understand that propriety is from God's perspective, is connected to the wisdom of His plan. It's not propriety from human perspective. It's not covetousness. It's not a person or a group of people saying, well, we should have that and they don't deserve that. You know, that's what leads to stealing. That's what leads to wars. That's what leads to all kinds of things. But it's from God's perspective of what's right and proper, not from man's perspective. And it's connected to the wisdom of His plan. There are several things in Scripture that have propriety language connected to them, including money, including suffering. And some of these we've seen recently. So the propriety of money. Why does he give us money? Why does he give us money? So we can enjoy it. Why does he give us anything? So that we can enjoy it. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. In many ways this is the summary of everything the wisdom literature says about wealth. And it gets doctrinally distilled in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you think about it in the Old Testament, all kinds of believers were tremendously wealthy. Abraham, the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs were tremendously wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. And uh, it's not a sin to be wealthy. You can be led astray, as Solomon did, 
But the issue wasn't his wealth, it was his idolatry that led him astray. The, the foreign women that he married and the, the influence they had to lead him into idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, it says, Give them this doctrinal instruction. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now here's the first item you've got to learn. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Stop right there. <laughs> rich in this present world. This present world is passing away. This world is passing away along with its lusts. You can't take anything with you when you go. You were born naked, you're going to leave, you know, you're not taking anything with you. All right. So if you're rich in this present world, you just got to recognize right then and there it's a transient thing, it's a temporary thing. It comes, it goes. But then don't be conceited. Don't be so prideful as to think that you're the source of that, of that wealth. That's the grace of God that put you in those conditions. It's the grace of God that provided. And uh, it's so tempting to think, well, I'm so smart and I made the right business decisions and I, I, uh, I saved and I, had some, I made smart choices. Really? So you conducted your life in accordance with the wisdom that the Word of God taught you to conduct your life. Is that what you're saying? You get credit for that or God gets credit for that? Because God wrote that wisdom literature. God taught you how to apply those principles. Or God also uh, convicted you to, to live that way. He put you under those convictions. Everything that we are, everything we have is the grace of God. And if He put you in those conditions, you're one of the few. Because there are not many mighty, there are not many noble. That's the exception rather than the rule. And that uh, in any local church, in any application, you're going to have a full spectrum. Every tax bracket imaginable, top to bottom. And wherever He's placed you is where He wants you. Keep living the principles that He's designed, and if He increases, that's His business. If He decreases, that's His business. But keep living the principles that God designs. And we have what's proper. And so... um, don't fix your hope, don't be conceited or fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. If, you're, if, if that becomes the basis of your hope, the basis of your faith, you've substituted wealth for God. You're worshiping mammon, not God. The hope is not to be in the riches because that's uncertain. The hope is to be in God. He is absolutely certain. Fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now that's a purpose clause. Everything God gives us is to be enjoyed. Enjoy it. Don't grumble about how small it is. Enjoy it. And don't boast about how big it is. Enjoy it. But enjoy it on the basis of God having supplied it. It's from God. So enjoy it. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if you can't enjoy it, you're not, it's not fitting. It's not proper. You're not, uh, you're not living in the lifestyle that, uh, for the right reasons that God has supplied. It is to be enjoyed. And so this is part of, too, what we learn. Paul says, I learned the secret of getting along in humble means. I learned the secret of prosperity. We learn how to function. We have a capacity And our capacity has to match God's provision. And this is what makes it unfitting is when the fool does not have the capacity that matches the level of wealth that God would bestow upon the man of wisdom. In other words, he doesn't have the capacity to handle that kind of wealth. What what gets called sometimes the sudden wealth syndrome when you win the, the lottery or the publisher's clearinghouse or some... Some uh, you know moron ends up a millionaire, and how many of them are bankrupt two years later? How many of them are dead five years later? It's a scary uh, kind of statistics that are out there. So he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. If God is the one supplying, and God has a purpose clause for supplying, in other words, to enjoy, then failure to enjoy is not fitting. 
enjoying is fitting. But it's from his perspective, not ours. And then it goes on to verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. That part of enjoying what God is richly supplying is to be an extension to share, to be generous and ready to share. That the capacity to enjoy such wealth is also the capacity to bless others with that wealth. That's why in the New Testament we have the spiritual gift of giving that is uh, built into the church age as a spiritual gift for believers with that capacity, with that spiritual empowerment. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That uh, in this capacity, laying up treasure in heaven requires the generosity of the earthly treasure. And this is what happens And when Jesus taught that parable, the man with the barns, he, he wasn't generous, he wasn't willing to share. He had too much to fit into those barns. And so what was his answer? Build bigger barns. His answer was not, hey, I got all this stuff I can't use, I can't need, let me just share it. There's others that have need. And in the context of Israel, he would have a clan and a tribe and a nation and there were plenty of, of others he could have shared with. No, his answer was not sharing. His answer was uh, hoarding more. And so in hoarding more, he never store up for himself any treasure on, on, in heaven. Jesus said, you fool. Tonight your soul is required of you and now who will, who will acquire what you have gathered? We need, to, we need to lay up a treasure in heaven. And the, this verse describes how to do that. That if you're generous and ready to share, you're storing up for themselves treasure in heaven. A good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's generosity and fellowship sharing that lays up the treasures in heaven. And if you're holding to it too tightly on this earth, you're not putting anything in heaven. You've got nothing up on layaway because you're holding up to too much here. So we have God's perspective and there's propriety, that which is appropriate, that which is fitting. Enjoying is fitting. Even suffering, Hebrews 2.10. Remember this? Hebrews 2.10. God says it was appropriate fitting. This is our Savior. We see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting. There's our word. Proper, appropriate. It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It was fitting for Jesus Christ to suffer. It would be unfitting for him not to suffer. It's just the opposite, see. And the world tells you, oh, you don't deserve this. Why, why should you experience this? That's not right, that's not fair. They were tempting Jesus to come down off the cross. If God loved you, he wouldn't put you up there. All those temptations. Or you're going through some kind of a suffering, some kind of test, and, and that the devil, some little demon whispers in your ear, it's not right, it's not fitting. You shouldn't have to do this. You're better than this. Why do you have to have face this test? And that little pride steps in and says, yeah, that's right, I'm better than this. I shouldn't have to go through this. Why do these things always happen to me? And we're, we're substituting, anytime we do that, we substitute human viewpoint for what's fitting, what's proper, what's appropriate. We need to go back to God's standard in the Bible for what's fitting, what's proper, what's appropriate. It's His standard that lays these things out. And so God has a standard for what's fitting, what's appropriate. It's even less fitting for a slave to rule over princes. So for a fool to live the life of luxury is not fitting. Even less fitting for a slave to rule over princes. 
And this is going to require some adapting, of course. We don't, we don't have slaves in our culture, in our society. There still is slavery in this world, just not in our country. But the slavery, a prince is a man of tremendous wealth, tremendous ownership, tremendous property. A slave owns nothing. He doesn't even own himself. And so when we talk about ownership and we talk about sovereignty and possession, even those things are under attack in, in postmodern philosophy. Even the idea of owning anything. That when you own something, you have a right. You control its use. You control its enjoyment. You, you control its uh, exploitation, its productivity when you own it. Well, a slave doesn't even own himself. His own productivity, his own labor, his own, his own uh, industry, the production that he, the, the work that he accomplishes is not even his because he doesn't even own himself at that point. This is as, as destitute as you can get. And so for somebody like that to usurp sovereignty in a nation or a city, or a state, or whatever the context might be, to then have a sovereign dominion over a prince, over a Tsar, something's wrong. The natural order has been upended. And however that came about, it can come about through war, it can come about through intrigue, it can come about through rebellion, it can come about through seeming coincidence or chance. A lot of different ways it can come about. <laughs> the Bible talks about it. Fairy tales talk about it. You have a prince and a pauper. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, there's there's a lot of uh, literature, and it's curious because in a lot of those, the the pauper really should have been a prince, but because of some mix up, he was in a bad place. Um, let's look at some of these examples. I think Isaiah spells it out. And then there's a, an illustration of this in 2 Samuel. But Isaiah chapter 3, it actually, if this is happening widespread in your nation, your nation is under God's discipline is what's happening. God will turn the social order upside down when uh, the spiritual priorities are wrong. Isaiah chapter 3. And as we read this, it was a prophetic warning against the, the nation of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. But we can see our own nation in this and say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. So all of their industry, all of their uh, leadership, all of their politics, all of their culture, every, every segment that should be uh, leading your, your society, and God brings them down. I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. And uh, I think Greta Thunberg in that. I think, you know, the how dare you. And uh, it just breaks my heart that this girl with developmental issues is being so manipulated. Her own parents are using her in, uh, for the cause. Capricious children will rule over them and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, the inferior against the honorable. Again, this is God speaking. This is not human opinion. This is not on a relative scale whereby one people group says we're superior and tells another people group that they're inferior. That's racism, sexism, classism, whatever. When one group of people tells another group of people they're inferior and treats them that way, that's wrong. And that's not what's happening here. This is God saying there is an objectively, not relative, but absolute, objectively superior, honorable person, and he's being 
subject to the inferior. The youth will storm against the elder. That's the order. We're supposed to respect our elders. The Bible never commands us to worship the children. And the inferior against the honorable. So in our culture, there are honorable people. Before the Lord, in the Word of God, there are honorable believers. In our culture, there are dishonorable people. And they are inferior, absolutely. And before the Lord, there are dishonorable believers that are objectively inferior. Inferior believers, superior believers. The neat thing about it, of course, is there's nothing that's forcing you to stay inferior. (laughs) Nothing that's forcing you to stay uh, dishonorable. Any inferior believer can become a superior believer by living in the Word of God. The mechanism is there. But when it's laid upside down and backwards, your culture is in for destruction. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. <laughs> well, yeah, that works. That's about, as, uh, that's about as functional as an Iowa caucus. Hey, I know. You should be our leader. You've, you've got a cloak. Is that what it takes? Is that the standard? What are we doing here? I think we should... Uh, Anyway, these ruins will be under your charge. Yeah, you could be our king, but all we can give you are these ruins. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. Boy, that tells you it's really gotten bad when you don't even want to be king. <laughs> So these are the principles, and it's, uh, it's laid out there. We've got to recognize this. If God is talking about the inferior who uh, has dominion over the honorable, we've got to ask ourselves that. What would God view as inferior? What would God view as honorable in His standard as His Word lays it out? Not how the world would define it, how God defines it. And, uh, and as our culture gets more and more unbiblical, we may find that, the, that the, um, the differences are stark. That there are people that are viewed as fine, upstanding members of the community. And yet, on a biblical basis, uh, they're not fine, they're not upstanding, they're not righteous. And it's, it's, it's sad to see how... Uh, as Isaiah 5 says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? Because God's standard doesn't change. All right, now the illustration for this comes in 2 Samuel chapter 3, and it's uh, just an illustration. I think it's a, it's a narrative that can relate to, uh, to this. After the death of Saul, there's a problem in that only the tribe of Judah embraced David as their king, and the other tribes, uh, 11 of them, including Benjamin, all 11 of the non-Judah tribes were, uh, were following the son of Saul, because Benjamin was from uh, the tribe that Saul came from. And so Benjamin and the other 10 tribes uh, tried to continue the line of King Saul, and uh, I think it was about seven years that that happened until David gets the entire kingdom with all 12 tribes. But this is the context for this story. And then Abner comes. Now Abner was the general. Abner was a, a man of honor. He was a man of, uh, he was a noble man. And uh, a prince, we would say. And uh, he comes to uh, join David and uh, we see that all the way back in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. And uh, Abner had been serving Saul until he comes over to David's side. Anyway, um, 
skip down to verse, he gets murdered here, and this is the problem. Um, he comes and he departs in peace. You'll notice this in verse uh, 20. Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. He's going to honor Abner. A- Abner is a man worthy of honor. I believe he was a mature believer with a divine viewpoint perspective. And Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you that you may be king over all uh, that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. This was a way to reconcile all the Jewish people, put all 12 tribes under David rather than under the son of Saul. Well, the problem is uh, Joab finds out about it and they, uh, they don't want this. So um, after leaving in peace, servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them, but Abner was not with David in Hebron. He had gone, sent him away and had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. He sent him away and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he's already gone? Should have killed him. That's what Joab would have done. See, Joab doesn't have the capacity. When we're talking about the perspective and capacity, Joab's the fool in the Proverbs uh, illustration. So, Joab came out from David, sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. See, for him it was personal. Because when they met on the battlefield, Abner killed Joab's brother. It was war. It was opposing armies. Nothing murder about it. In fact, Abner had kind of warned him, quit chasing me. Abner didn't want to do it, but Asahel kept chasing him. And then finally, yeah, Abner killed him. And so as a revenge for an act of war, now Joab is going to murder Abner. And uh, afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever on the blood of Abner for the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and all his father's house. May there not fall from the house of Joab. I'm sorry, may not fail from the house of Joab. One who has a discharge or who is a leper, who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. If you want to read that, it's a chapter earlier in chapter 2. Now, we get down to this language in verses 33 and 38. David said to Joab, to all the people who are with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the... It becomes a state funeral. David is going to lead the procession. So they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king chanted a lament for Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? There's a certain burial for a fool and there's a certain burial for a noble. And Abner was worthy. Your hands were not bound nor your feet put in fetters as one falls before the wicked. You have fallen. And the people wept again over him. Anyway, you go down through here and David's grieving and the lamentation. But down to verse 38. The king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel. That's a testimony. It's a marvelous testimony. And that word prince there is the sar that matches with what we're studying in Proverbs 19. So I think this is a good illustration in, uh, with a f- slave ruling over princes with what's not fitting when one person is seeking advancement and has to bring down another. That's just wrong so many levels. All right. Well, I thank you for this class and I pray that we learn these principles. I pray we understand your design, your design for personal volition, your design for marriage, your design for family, your design for nations. And I pray, Father, within your design for nations that we understand the mechanisms you put in place uh, in terms of commerce, in terms of the free exchange of goods and services, in terms of um, the different social classes within 
any culture, Father. Those that are recognized as being noble-minded and those that are identified for being fools. And I pray that we continually hold fast the Word of God as the absolute standard for wisdom versus foolishness. I do thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.